Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you all this morning. I've been looking forward to it for some time to celebrate the resurrection of Christ together. It's the greatest day in the whole calendar. It's a day that we remember Christ is risen and is no longer dead. And I want us this morning to honor the Lord by looking into His Word and answering the question, what exactly was accomplished by His death, burial, and resurrection? If somebody accomplishes a great feat and you want to honor that person, then one of the ways you do that is by seeing what they've done. And so we want to take a look at what was happening that weekend in Jerusalem. And of course, there was so much happening there, we could barely scratch the surface. But, but if there was one main message of the resurrection, what would it be? Well, to answer that, we're going to be looking at the book of Romans. So if you have a Bible with you, I would invite you to open it to the book of Romans, chapter 4, starting in verse 22. Romans chapter 4, verse 22. And we'll be going on to chapter 5, verse 11. And if you don't have a Bible with you, maybe your neighbor would be so kind as to let you look on with them. Romans chapter 4, verse 22. That is why His faith was counted to Him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to Him were not written for His sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification." Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him also we have obtained access, <clears throat> we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous Man, though perhaps for a good man one would dare even to die, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we rejoice also in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received reconciliation. Now let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would be exalted this morning in our hearts and in our minds through the preaching of Your Word. 
or this day is about Christ. He is risen from the grave. He's no longer dead. And I pray that You would help us to see and to know what that means in a greater measure. Lord, our hearts are often cold. Our thoughts often wandering. There is so much that mitigates against, Lord, against us this morning. You often seem far off. But Lord, we pray that You would draw near to us as we draw near to You. And that You would accomplish those things that only You can do. Be with us this morning through Your Word. It's in Your name we pray. Be with me, Lord, and be with us all. Amen. Well, our passage this morning, it's not an account of the resurrection. And it's not from the Gospels, Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. No, it actually goes much further back than that. Our passage is recounting for us something that happened all the way back in the book of Genesis. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and and relatively early in that book in chapter 12. And it's pointing our minds back to a man named Abraham. That's who the his and the him in those first verses that we read from chapter 4 were referring to. To a man named Abraham. And Abraham, at this point in history, in Genesis 12... Really, he he wasn't anything more than an insignificant Middle Eastern goat herder. That's what he was at the time. There were thousands alive just like him. And there have been thousands who have come and gone since that time has forgotten. And so why then, all of these thousands of years later, are we still speaking about Abraham? His life was exhausted a very long time ago. Why does his name come up today? What's unique about him? Well, it wasn't anything to do with him. In fact, the only reason we know that he even existed is because of God. The God, the Lord Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth spoke to Abraham. And when he spoke to Abraham, he commanded him, called him to leave his homeland, called him to travel to a distant place that he would show him, and God made a covenant with Abraham. And so the reason why this man is so important is not because he was great or mighty or wealthy. The reason Abraham is important is because of a promise God made to him. He promised that Abraham would be the father of a great nation. He promised that Abraham would be a blessing to the whole world, that all of the people of the world would be blessed through him. And God would carry out those promises, we're told, through one of Abraham's descendants. One of Abraham's sons would one day arrive on the scene of history and fulfill every promise God had made. But there was a problem. It was a big problem. Abraham had no children. His wife was barren. If that wasn't enough, Abraham was old. How old was he? Well, he was 75 years old when God called him out of his homeland and made that promise. It wasn't until 15 years later 
God came again and reassured Abraham of that promise in Genesis 15. By then, Sarah was 80. And in fact, it wouldn't be until Abraham was 100 years old and his wife Sarah 90 before God fulfilled the promise He made to them to give them a son. And that's not even where the trouble ends. Because Abraham knew how old he was, and it didn't escape him that even though he was given all of these promises, he wouldn't live long enough to see any of them fulfilled. The land, the great nation, none of it would happen in his lifetime. Now imagine for a moment you're in Abraham's shoes. You're in his position. You are old. You've long ago given up the hope of having any children. But one day, you hear a message from God, and in that message, there is a command and there is a promise. So a command. Come out from the land you know, the land of your forefathers, the land of your father's house, and go to the place that I will show you. That's what God told him. And you have to understand, this is a command to separate from everything he knew, to separate from his future, and even from his own family. I mean, this is, this is not a small thing in the ancient world. This is a big deal. It's not like uh, a kid going off to college, starting out on his own. That's not what's happening here. Your family was your strength. If an enemy came against you, there, there weren't armies or police in the world at that time, and it would fall on your family or your tribe to protect one another from the threats in the world. And your father's house was your future. Wealth was tied to land. And, and so any plans that Abraham had for his future, they would have included what he would have received from his father, Terah. And he was asked to leave it all behind. Leave behind his entire earthly inheritance and all of the plans that he may have made for himself for his future. Give them up. And his home, the, the land he knew and the land he was secure in. The people spoke the same language. They used the same measurements. They had a common culture. To leave that behind would make Abraham a perpetual outsider. God is telling Abraham to leave everything behind. All his hope for security, leave it. All your plans for the future, forsake them. All the customs and comforts that you know, cut them off. That's what he was commanded to do. But the message also had a promise. God would bless Abraham tremendously. And the blessing wouldn't stop with him or even with his immediate family. It would keep going and going, flowing out from Abraham onto the whole world. And people from every tribe and tongue and nation would be blessed through Abraham. In this passage of Scripture that we read this morning in Romans 5, it tells us of the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. That promise of a son who would come. And it wasn't Isaac. Miraculous as his birth was, Isaac was Abraham and Sarah's child, born when he was 100 and she was 90. It was a miracle. But Isaac ultimately wasn't the one. That one wouldn't come for thousands of years later 
And He would come and the promises would be fulfilled in the person of Christ who we celebrate this morning. It was in Him that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And it's that blessing that is described for us in Romans chapter 4 and chapter 5. And there are five words in that passage that come up over and over again that help us to comprehend the purpose and the scope of this promise fulfilled. And I would like to draw your attention to those words this Easter morning. And the first word is righteousness. Righteousness. And we read, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or credited to him as righteousness. And if it's something, uh, if something is credited to you, it means it's given to you, right? In fact, the word credited is, is an ancient accounting term. Credited to one's account, reckoned to one's account. And righteousness, which Abraham needed, was counted to him in full measure. But why did Abraham need righteousness in the first place? Wasn't it enough to hear God's voice? Have God come and call him out? Wasn't it enough for him to leave his homeland? And that's what he did. He obeyed the commands that God gave him. And wasn't it enough to know God? He even has a, a vision later on, seeing God come as a, as a, as a, a, a smoldering pot. Wasn't that enough to have all of these things? Why was Abraham still lacking righteousness? Well, the reason he needed righteousness was actually and precisely because he knew God. You see, righteousness means, well, it means what it sounds like, rightness. It means being right or doing what is right. And when you read in the Bible or hear that God is righteous, it means that everything he thinks and everything he says and everything God does is right. Now, we can say that and just move on from there like it's a given. But stop and think about what that means. What would it be like to always say and know and do the right thing? Never to be confused about a decision. Never swayed in the wrong direction. When a fork in the road comes, you know immediately the course of action to take and exactly what to do. And then you do it every time flawlessly. Never having second thoughts, but always and only straightforward, all the time, righteous. That would be something, wouldn't it? Now think, how do you compare to that? Take even the wisest person that you know, the best person that you know. They don't even do this, do they? If you were to sit down with them and talk to them, you'd find out they have many doubts about some of the decisions they made you would find out very quickly they don't always do what is right. In fact, many times they even do what is wrong. Sometimes because they make a wrong decision, I've made the wrong choice. Sometimes they do what is wrong deliberately. They, like all of us, do the opposite of what is right. And the opposite of what is right and righteous is called sin. Doing what is wrong. And in Romans 3, sin is falling short of the glory of God. And everybody has it. No exceptions. 
all have sinned. No one is perfectly righteous. I mean, certainly by God's standard. What does he require? Absolute perfection. In Matthew 5, 48, it makes the standard of righteousness that God requires of his people perfectly clear. Jesus says, you must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Not just perfect uh, according to us, but perfect according to God. That is the righteousness of God. Absolute perfection in thought, word, deed, and not only for one time, but all the time, every time. Well, here's the problem. If it isn't obvious already, God is righteous. And Abraham was not. Well, when you say, he must have been a pretty bad man. No. As far as men go, he was a very good man. Nobody in this room would dispute that if you knew him. Certainly, uh, by the standards of those ancient times, Abraham stood head and shoulders above everybody else in terms of his morality. He was hospitable, compassionate, generous. When there was a conflict between he and his nephew Lot, he was the peacemaker, even though it cost him and put him at an economic disadvantage. When the nephew then got himself in trouble, Abraham gathered up a small army to go and find him and rescued him. Nobody loved their family more than Abraham loved his. And not only that, he was religious. He prays for mercy for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah interceding on their behalf. He offered sacrifices to the Lord God. He performed all the rituals he was commanded to. When God told him to do something, he did it. Even being willing to offer his own son Isaac as a burnt offering, knowing that God could raise him from the dead. He devoutedly worshipped the Lord God. Oh yes, there were a few things that he did wrong when uh, he tried to bring about God's promises by human means and when he lied about his wife, sure. But as far as righteousness goes, he was beyond, far beyond any of his contemporaries. He was what we would readily call a good man. And yet, all of it was not enough. God did not look at Abraham and say, oh, he is righteous because of what he does. He didn't look at him and say, he is religious and he is kind and he loves his family. He is a good man. He didn't even look at Abraham and say, oh, he left his home like I told him to do and traveled to the place that I showed him. No, Abraham may have been good compared to everybody else. He may have been the only one following the Lord at the time. But he wasn't good compared to God, even though he was the most upright and outstanding man in the whole Bronze Age world. He still fell short. He needed righteousness, which is why the next word that comes in this passage is so important, the word justified. It's not used in the same way that you might use it today or if you hear it used in your work. When you think of the word justified, usually you hear it and you think, well, it means I had a good reason for what I did. I had a good reason for taking the course of action that was taken. The action was justified. Well, that's not what it means here. What it means here is declared righteous. Justified means 
to be declared that I have that necessary quality of righteousness. Now, when someone is justified, you sometimes hear it defined like this. God sees them just as if they never sinned. And that's true, but it's not enough. It's not enough just that to be justified means you're treated as though you've never sinned and you were left neutral like a a blank slate, now able to try to earn some of your own righteousness. That's not what it means. That's how many people think of righteousness, usually apart from justification, where we're all born neutral and sometimes we do bad, other times we do good, and our great hope in this life is that maybe, possibly, somehow, when we stand before the Lord, the scales will tip in our favor. We have a vague uncertain, crossing of the fingers kind of hope, which is no hope at all, that maybe when we have to give an account before God, He'll see some of the good things we've done and He'll let us in. But why should He? If Abraham, the man called God's friend, the man about who, uh, above whom and around whom there was no equal in righteousness, the best man alive in, that, in those days if he needed a righteousness that comes from God apart from his own works, then thinking that ours are sufficient are going to do better for us than Abraham's did for him. It's naive at best and foolish at worst to put that kind of hope in yourself. God hasn't come down and called you His friend. God hasn't come down and given you a a vision or spoken to you with an audible voice. I mean, you might stand out morally compared to a a few people you know, maybe compared to a few of the seedier sectors of our society, but by and large, there are others who you would be forced to rank above yourself. And even as far as your own good works go, you of all people know just how faulty and frail they actually are. You know your motives are not what they should be. They're not always genuine, are they? You know that your works are not always complete. They may not even be that good in the first place. Have you ever done any, anything that was good, uh, done a good deed for a bad end? Maybe you're going to do something good so you can manipulate something and get something out of them? Not every good deed is even good on its face. Now all of our good works all the good things we do. This is why the Bible says they're filthy rags compared to God. And even the things that we do good, they're never done perfectly, are they? This is why the Bible says there is no one righteous. No, not one. And if all justification meant was your sins are gone, then this righteousness would still be lacking, wouldn't it? And so you see, it's not enough to just be declared sinless. Not only must you never do what is wrong, never transgress God's commands or design, no, you need to do everything right. It's not enough to be a blank slate. We need a slate that is full. We need an account that is to the max. We need to be declared righteous, justified. Those accounts, our moral debts, must be paid and credited with the righteousness God requires. That, that perfect, unyielding, incorruptible, unsullied righteousness of God. And how is that done? 
How can you be declared righteous before Him? To be saved from both your good works and your bad. They all fall short. It brings us to the third word this morning, maybe the most important word this morning. Faith. 4.22 Abraham believed. Abraham's faith is counted to him as righteousness. 5 verse 1, we have, we have been justified by faith. Faith is the means of being justified. Faith, we're told right here, is how anyone will be declared righteous. Faith is how you will be righteous before God. Well, that leaves the question, doesn't it? Faith in what? People put their faith in many different things. What's the object of the faith in view here? What is faith being put in? Well, not in ourselves, certainly. I mean, sometimes we we use that language, don't we? Believe in yourself. And it may have some application in the athletic world or in the professional world if it means, well, trust in your training and trust in your preparation. Believe in yourself. But it's certainly not the kind of faith spoken of here. Not faith in self. Self is utterly lacking. It's already been made clear. Well, if it's not self then, what is the object of our faith? We're told we must have faith. What must we have faith in? Well, if you answer, well, faith in God. Faith that God exists. Well, He does exist. And you must believe that. But that doesn't require faith. Romans 1 tells us everyone knows there is a God because of what has been made. Even Aristotle, the ancient philosopher who was by no means a Christian, understood absolutely that every logical, reasonable person, if they were consistent and sensible in their thinking, would be forced to conclude there is a Creator God. No, no, no. Saving faith is not in some generic God who made everything. Maybe it's faith in the facts about Christ. The, fact, the facts of Christ. I believe Jesus is God. I believe that He existed. I believe He died and rose again. Well, that's closer to the mark, but don't be mistaken. Every demon in hell believes all of this. They believe the facts unquestioningly. They know who Jesus is. They know that He died and rose again. They know that He existed. They know the history. And I think that saving faith required here is a little more than the faith of the demons. Or maybe you're religious. Maybe you consider yourself to be a Christian. And you trust in that. I call myself a Christian. Identify as a Christian. That's enough. Maybe I attend church regularly. Maybe I attend church sporadically. I tend to my religious duties, either faithfully or in part, but I still do them. Maybe you pray. Maybe, maybe you could talk a great deal about theology. Maybe you give. But if that's where you've placed your faith, in your own religious exercise or experience, well, I'm afraid you're not much better than the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They trusted in their religion for their salvation, for their righteousness, but when they were weighed in the balance, they were found lacking. And so it's not faith in our goodness or our belief in the existence of God or the facts about Christ or in our own religious devotion. None of those are the faith that we're commanded to have. Because the faith we're commanded to have is faith in both the person and the work of Jesus Christ and that it was done 
for you. We are called to faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and the pinnacle of this gospel is what we celebrate this Easter morning. Gospel means good news. And for a people who were alienated from God, who were cut off and condemned to die in their sin, the Bible says the soul that sins will die. And that doesn't just mean going down in the ground. It means eternal death. And judgment by God for that sin coming on all people, hell forever. If you knew that that's where you were headed, if you knew that there was nothing you could do about it, you knew that I'm at odds with God, I lack that necessary righteousness, then what better news could you hear than God has made a way for you? Well, we don't often think that the news is very good. You hear me saying that uh, I have this great lack before God. Well, I don't see it. I don't understand how that could be so. I don't feel an ounce of it. Do you know why? Let me give you an example. Imagine you're sitting at home. You're watching the hockey game. Your two favorite teams are playing. And, uh, you know, uh, it's in overtime. The game is a very exciting game. But then all of a sudden, it flashes on the screen, breaking news, and it cuts away from your hockey game. And it cuts away to a man, he's in a lab coat, and he's, he's very excited, and he, he comes up onto the screen and he says, he says, we have found it. We have found a cure for cancer. Nobody is going to die from this disease anymore. And he goes on explaining about what they've done and, and how, they've, how they researched it and, and the applications of it. And he's going on and on. What do you do? You're sitting in your seat. You think, hey, that's good news. And you, maybe you call to your, uh, call to your, your spouse, your wife, in the, in, in, uh, wherever she is in the house. And you say, hey, you have to come and see this. Look at what happened. This is good news. And then maybe you think of a couple of friends of yours who had the disease or have the disease and you think this is really good news for them and then you're watching the program and it just keeps going on and on and you reach a point where you think alright this is great can we get back with the game now right okay, rewind let's, let's start this over you're not sitting in a lounger in your living room you're lying in a hospital bed This disease, cancer, has taken you to the end of your life and you know that within weeks you will be dead and gone. To take your mind away from it, you're watching the game. Same game. Same time. And it flashes across the screen. Breaking news. Same man comes forward. Lab coat. And he says what? It's the exact same news. We have found a cure for cancer. Nobody is going to die from this disease ever again. It is effective in every instance, every type, and one pill, and it's done. How are you going to react? You're going to think it's really, really good news, aren't you? And you know, what's not, you know what you're not thinking about anymore in that moment? You're not thinking about the game anymore. Why? Because you were sick. This disease that was wasting away your life, destroying it, going to take it away and put you in the grave. Now, because of the news you heard, you're not going to die. You're going to live. 
and you're going to call up all your friends and you're going to tell them. I'm not going to die anymore. Did you, did you hear the news? You, maybe you're going to write a letter to the doctor who discovered it. Thank you for what you've done. You don't understand. I was going to die and now I'm going to live. What's the difference between those two pictures? One of those two men knew how sick he really was. And so the other man thought, oh, it's good news for somebody else. It's good news for me, maybe in the future. One of the reasons why we don't understand how good the news is is because we don't understand our utter lack of righteousness. That we were dead in trespasses and sins, as good as dead on the bottom of the ocean floor. But God has made us alive in Christ. Well, what is that good news that our faith must be in? What is the good news that we're called to have faith about? A child can understand it. Verse 25. It is faith in our Lord Jesus who was delivered up for our trans transgressions and raised for our justification. Well, what does that mean? First, our Lord Jesus. It wasn't anyone who was nailed to the tree. It was the Lord. It was God incarnate, God in the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary. There is a, a man to be believed in, the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God, the Son of God who supernaturally came into this world as a man. But there is a man to be believed in. And he was delivered. That can mean to hand someone over to destruction, and he was. But he wasn't handed over by Judas, and he wasn't ultimately handed over to the Romans. But he was handed over to the judge of all the earth. In the Garden of Gethsemane, where he spent his final hours of this life praying, he prayed, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. You remember? Yet not my will, but yours be done. He was anguished over having a cup to drink. And what was in the cup? Have you thought about it? He says, let this cup pass from me. What is it that is causing Christ to sweat drops of blood and bringing to Him unceasing anguish? Well, all through the Old Testament, this cup is a symbol of God's wrath against sin. Against everything that is evil in the world. God hates it. Psalm 5.5, 5, God hates those who do what is evil. It's part of what it means for God to be righteous. If you are right in everything you think and do, then you have a right attitude and a right response to evil in the world. I mean, sometimes you experience this yourself. You, you see in the news some horrific tragedy or some abuse and you become furious. It makes you angry and that's right. I mean, what do you think of a person who, when, when they hear about a, a school shooting and they just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, I guess it's whatever they wanted to do. No, it's evil. If you love what is right and good, you must hate what is evil and unrighteous. And if you, us who are men and women, just like those men and women who commit those atrocities, they are men and women like us. If we can feel so outraged, how much more a perfect and holy God. 
How much more the judge of all of the earth when he sees not just a glimpse of what happens, but everything that happens. He is furious with sin and with sinners. Now this cup is a picture of that righteous fury. It's full and and frothing with a kind of almost poisonous wine that Jeremiah says makes men stagger and fall and die. And that is what Christ was delivered to. Not to, a, not to a crown and not to a whip and not to the nails and not even to the cross. No, the, the, it was not the physical pain that crushed Him. It was the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's holy justice against everything sinful. Oh, but He wasn't just delivered over to it. He was delivered over for us. For our trespasses. For our transgressions. Not His own. He was the incorruptible one. We are the sinners. We are the lawbreakers. We are the transgressors. And because of that, you understand, everyone, every one of us, every one of you had a portion of that cup to drink. It had your name written right on it, and it was full. Or at least you had a portion of that cup to drink. Because at the cross, Jesus took your cup, and He took your cup, And He took your portion and He poured them all into His own. He took what belonged to us, rightly so, and filled up His cup until it was full to the brim. No more could be added. And He drank down your death. And He drank down your hell. And all of your rightly earned sentence, all of it, He drank until not a single drop was left. And it was for our transgressions that He suffered and that He died. That's what happened on the cross. And this is the object of your faith. You believe Jesus is who He said He was. You believe He was handed over by God. You believe what He says about you is true. You are a a sinner, a criminal in the court of God. You say, I am no sinner. Then unfortunately, there is no salvation for you because God did not come to save the righteous, but the sinner. And the first step in salvation is confessing, I have sinned. It is true. And you believe that He drank your penalty and died your death so that your transgression would be forgiven. But that's not where it ends. That's not how you are declared righteous before God. You see, in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, a day when the sins of God's people were symbolically atoned for by the blood of a goat and a bull, the high priest on that day would enter into the inner sanctum of the temple, the Holy of Holies, with the blood of their sacrifices. And if God accepted that sacrifice, the high priest would return. Now, some traditions say that on the day the high priest would go in before God with the blood of the offering, he would have a rope tied around his waist. And the reason he had a rope around his waist was if he went into that holy place and his offering was not accepted, he would drop dead and would have to be dragged out. But if that happened, if that happened, it would mean the sacrifice was not accepted. And if the sacrifice was not accepted, then the sins of the people were not covered. And if the sins were not covered, then they would have to lay in their sins bare before God. And if they bear their sins before God, they would surely die in those sins. 
But Hebrews tells us when Christ died, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And when He rose from the grave, it was a pronouncement to all that God had accepted His offering. Then we were declared righteous. Then we were justified before God. This is why verse 25 says He was raised for our justification. It was accepted. The resurrection assures us of the justification of all who have put their faith in Christ. This is a faith that justifies. God has declared us who were sinners Righteous because of the atoning death, burial, and justifying resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that faith look like? Abraham is our example. Just listen to verses 18 through 21 of chapter 4. It says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew stronger in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised." Now, does that mean we have to have some kind of incredible, unshakable hope in order to be saved? Well, no, but what it says is this. Abraham had an anchor. Abraham had a rock to stand on, and in spite of everything he saw in his own life that would convince him otherwise, he believed God. You say, what was the promise? Abraham will have a son, but Abraham was good as dead. And when he looked at himself, when he looked at Sarah, when he looked at his circumstances, everything was against him. So Abraham had to make a decision. Am I going to trust in what I see? Am I going to trust in the weakness of my flesh? And am I I going to say, no God, that's impossible. You don't know how old I am. Or is he going to trust the promises of God? That God is able to do what, as far as Abraham sees, is hopeless? Is he going to believe the biology of Sarah, who, for 40 year, who is now 40 years past the age of bearing children? Or, because God has spoken instead, he is going to believe that God is able to do what he said he would do? And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And starting there, he grew to be fully convinced of what God had promised so that he did not waver. You say, what does this mean for me? When you look at your own life, you fall short. You sin. You've broken every law that God has ever given. And if you don't believe that, meet with me afterward. It won't take very long to convince you. But we all were rightly under the wrath of God. I have no reason why you should save me. Take a look at your life. What could you hold up and say, well, look at this, God. The only thing we have is a promise. And that's it. How many of you know, you probably all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. So you see the sin in yourself? 
You recognize the hopelessness of ever pleasing God in the flesh. You know you're barren of merit. But then held out is this promise of God that says elsewhere in Scripture, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. Some of you know this better than others, and you don't need anybody to convince you of your sin. You don't need anyone to convince you that you need righteousness. You know you don't have it. You know the evil that you do. You can't possibly believe that God would ever love a sinner like you. I'm singling you out this morning, not for embarrassment, but I'm singling you out because there's more hope for you than just about everybody else who thinks they have no need of a Savior. Jesus came to the sick and to the lost and to the blind. And what you need is the same thing as everybody else. Faith in Christ. And so you don't hope in what you see. All that you see in your life, that will condemn. You don't trust in your own righteousness. It's not enough to turn from both of them and hope in what He has done. That's the faith that justifies. And the goal of that faith, the fourth word, reconciliation. We are reconciled to God. We have peace with Him. That's what justifying faith does. And it's, it's, not a, it's not an end in itself. Faith is getting you somewhere. It's getting you to Him. God doesn't forgive you and clothe you and then leave you as an orphan. We are reconciled. We have peace with God. Don't stop short of this. The blessings of the Gospel are more than justification. You belong to God now. And what kind of justification and reconciliation is it? What kind of peace do you have? Well, sometimes you're tempted to think that, well, if I come to the Lord in faith, He will tolerate me. And that you'll be forever on the outskirts of His love. Oh yes, He loves me, but it's with the barest possible minimum of affection. He has set His grace upon me in the faintest, smallest measure and will pull me to heaven as if on a thread. He has forgiven me begrudgingly. Listen, that's not the God of the Bible. Listen to what it says in verses 6 through 10. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. We take this so for granted. We take this passage so for granted that one would scarcely die even for a good man. But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, sick, not worthy, not seeking Him, not loving Him, Christ died for us. That's how God shows His love. It's from Him. It's not earned by us. It reminds me of a story I heard once of a, of a prince of a northern kingdom. And he was a, a good prince. He was a good ruler who always judged justly. And all the people of this kingdom loved this prince because of the, the good works that he did and the good example that he set. And one day he was traveling around on a on dog sled to go from, from place to place so he could enact justice in all of these towns. And his servant was with him. And the servant loved him dearly like everybody else in this kingdom. And, and as they're going along, uh, one, of his, one of the guards uh, traveling the dog sled next to him, the, the sled started to go behind. And so he turned around and went back to see what the matter was. And one of the dogs had, had tripped and injured himself. And so the prince uh, swapped 
and traded sleds with the others and told his guards, you go on ahead and I'll meet you at the next town. And he and his servant got into the sled and were, were going along. And as they were going along, they watched as the two other sleds with the guards went out of sight. And then they heard something. And the servant looked behind. And, and there in the distance, they saw what looked like a, a dark cloud. He alerted the prince. The prince turned from uh, reining the, the dogs and, and saw it coming. And he, he cracked the whips and ordered the dogs to mush, to go faster and faster to try and, and get away because there behind them was a pack of wolves and it was closing in and gaining ground. It was coming forward faster and faster and the, and the servant looked back and he knew, he knew that there is no way that we're going to make it to this town. The only possible way for us to get there is for the sled to be made lighter. And so the servant, because he loved his prince, he made up his mind. As soon as they got close enough, he would, he would throw himself off of the sled to save his prince whom he loved from the wolves. And he reached his hand behind him to put on the shoulder of the prince one last show of affection before laying down his life for this good man. And when he reached behind him, the prince wasn't there. He felt the reins in his hands. And the last thing he saw was the prince himself throwing himself from the back of the sled into the mouths of the ravenous wolves. The sled continued on, and the servant was saved by the death of this beloved prince. Scarcely will one give his man life for a good man. And we hear this story and we think that's, that's incredible. And it is. But as incredible as that is, Christ goes further still. We weren't even faithful servants. You, you understand, that's what this passage is, is teaching us. We were enemies of God. Enemies of this good and righteous, glorious Prince. We didn't care about righteousness at all. We didn't care about God. Some of us may have even mocked Him and mocked His sacrifice and trampled it underfoot 20, 30, 40, 50 years before He saved us. And listen, if while you were doing that, if you were, that was you, you could not care less about God, and that is when He died for you, then how much more now that you are reconciled, shall you be secure in His love? I mean, how can you honestly believe that if he, he died for you while you hated Him, will He now love you less that you love Him more? By no means. By no means. No, if He died for you while you were His enemy, how much more will He save you and keep you now that you call Him friend? And so we rejoice. We have a lot of reasons to rejoice. The world can take it all. You haven't lost a thing. Take your rights. Take your land. Take your job. Take your life. It's all loss compared to the supreme, all-surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ and God. How can all the problems of this life, and, and I don't mean to say they're not there, they are many, but how do they compare to this? It's the greatest glory. It's the greatest gift. It's the greatest joy imaginable. And it makes everything else, it just seems trivial 
in comparison. Every trial, every loss, every threat, every fear for the future, they just don't seem significant anymore when held up against the glorious gospel and the eternal glories that have been given to you by faith in Christ. Isn't that how this passage ends? More than this. More than what? More than salvation, more than forgiveness, more than atonement, more than justification, more than all of that, we rejoice in God. Even reconciliation has a goal, that we rejoice in God through Christ. Oh, you want to be happy? Everybody wants to be happy. And you can be either for the remainder of your time here in this life, though it's not guaranteed tomorrow could be a lot worse than today. In fact, it really looks that the best of uh, times are, are behind us now. But you could try to find your happiness here in loving this world and the things of this world for as long as you're alive in this world. But that'll come to an end. It will. Billions of examples of it coming to an end. Or you can be happy forever in Christ and have joy unspeakable, joy that you do not even yet know exists. And it's found in God alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. You make known to me the path of life. It's your presence, is fullness of joy at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. That's the goal of the gospel, that you glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And what does it say about us that God has to command us to do this, to command us to be joyful? How bent we are on our own destruction that the God of all of the universe has, who has done so much for us in Christ and yet we are so hard-hearted that He must command us to be saved and command us to be joyful in Him. I mean, how hard a heart must be inside your chest. Don't harden your heart any longer. And don't, don't turn and go out the door thinking, well, that's a, a quaint thing, a funny thing, works for you, not for me. Maybe when I'm later, put it all behind you. I'm talking to you who do not believe the gospel. Maybe I described you earlier. You have some form of Christianity, but no real faith that saves. You face the same dilemma that Abraham faced. Do you realize that? God commanded him to leave his homeland, his family, and his father's house. To leave his security, his culture, and his future plans. And he commands each of you to forsake all hope you have in yourself or in your friends or in your pocketbook or in anything else. In fact, every security that's not found in faith in Christ must be forgotten and gotten rid of. Why? Because it's insufficient. It's an idol. It cannot help you. It makes promises that it cannot deliver on. So let nothing keep you from being secure in God through Christ. And He commands each of you to separate from the world and its ways. The culture of this world with all of its deceits, leave them behind. You've walked long enough in the destructive paths, the hopeless, God-despising, sin-loving ways of this world. And the time has arrived for you to come out and walk on the narrow road that leads to life. And He commands each of you to forsake your future plans for your life. In fact, He calls you to die to yourself and live for Him. All of your ambitions, your plans, your hope, your goals, you give them to Him and He becomes your treasure. 
And he becomes your future and he becomes your ambition. And you surrender it all and lay it down at his feet. But he doesn't just call you to forsake what you've known. No, by faith you believe that what he holds out in the gospel is more precious and more valuable than everything you have left behind. And by faith you believe that you will be blessed even though you won't see it in this lifetime. That's what he commands you to do, to believe by faith that you will be blessed. And he commands you to believe by faith that you are forgiven. How would it feel to have all of the weight of guilt that you carry taken away? Some of you carry that guilt all the time. You know what God's Word is for you this morning? Be relieved in Christ. All the many sins you've heaped up over the years have been paid for by Him. And He commands you to be saved forever by His Son. And He commands you to be joyful. He commands all people to be as joyful as they can be by finding their satisfaction in Him. That's the message of the Gospel. And it's the message we exalt this Easter morning. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and on the third day rose from the grave to reconcile us to God for His glory and for our everlasting joy. Let's pray. Thank You for Your Word and thank You for Your Son and thank You for Your Gospel. Thank You for our future. Thank You for forgiveness. All of it in the risen Christ. We have no hope apart from You. We have no help apart from Christ. There is nowhere else to find freedom from our burden of sin. This world is full of distractions that would turn our minds away, but nothing can take away the guilt and make us clean except for You. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here who does not know You, that this would be the day of salvation. That they would call upon Your name while You are near. And be saved. Find their joy in Christ, even if it costs them everything in this world. That they would be wise. That you would give them the grace to come. I pray for those who love you, Lord, that their hearts would be renewed by seeing what You have done and being reminded of what You have done for us in Christ. That we really would see it as good news worth telling everyone about. A good news worth giving our lives for, living for, dying for, all of it for. I pray that You would fix our minds on Christ, Your Son. Thank You. It's in your name we pray. Amen.